This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. If you want to have a fun money account, you want to buy a little sliver of a stock to learn something, that's fine with me. If you want to buy some Bitcoin, that's fine too. You want to learn about this thing, you want to follow it, you want to stick it in a drawer, fine. But if you think that that's going to be the cornerstone of how you accumulate wealth, I think you're going to be taught a very brutal lesson. show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about common money mistakes to avoid on our financial independence journey. I love sharing mortgage-free stories, young millionaire wins, and debt-free victories on this show because we discuss the steps to make this a reality for you. But it's also important to discuss what we shouldn't do as well. And I have the perfect guest today who's going to help us with just that. And her name is Jill Schlesinger. Jill Schlesinger is the Emmy-nominated and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News. Jill appears on CBS radio and television stations nationwide, covering the economy, markets, investing, and anything else with a dollar sign. Jill's five-star rated book, The Dumb things smart people do with their money, 13 ways to right your financial wrongs is available now. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, money mistakes, I'm always about money wins. I'm like this positive guy that's trying to talk about all these great things people are doing, but it's also important to highlight some of the the dumb things, right? Why do you feel it's important to highlight some of the dumb things smart people do with their money? Because everyone makes mistakes and we are not perfect. We are unfortunately human beings. And we are far from analytical, smooth algorithms that can make the best decision. We're guided by our emotions. And I just, I always found it annoying to to be lectured by people telling me all the things that I should do as if you never make a mistake. And I found it, you know, I was a financial planner. I was, I started my life as a trader and then a financial planner and then, you know, sort of got into media as a third career. And I always found it sort of annoying to be lectured by people who had never actually given advice for a living or done it. And I found it uh, maddening that these people were so unforgiving that people make mistakes and that's okay. You can make a mistake. Uh, My job is to say, let's try to avoid that mistake if possible. And if you do make a mistake, I'm not going to judge you for it. I just want to try to help you get to the next best place. That's a departure from some financial advice out there that is, hey, if you do it this way, then you are dumb. But I think you're laying it out there that, hey, sometimes people make mistakes and that's okay. Is that right? Absolutely. And not only sometimes, everybody makes a financial mistake. There's not a person among us who hasn't made a financial mistake. I heard one financial journalist or pundit talk about, you know, all these great moves. And I thought to myself, I didn't say it out loud, like, you made so many great moves and what are you doing here? Like, go <laughs> save the world and move on. But like, nobody makes all those moves. And and we all make mistakes. We all 
again, we fall prey to this condition called being a human being. We are moved by fear. We're moved by greed. We're moved by a generalized anxiety that keeps you stuck in some old patterns. So again, I just, you don't have to aim for perfection either. You can do this and make some mistakes along the way. I just want you to avoid the big mistakes that are very hard to correct. Well, I love that. Well, full transparency out there. Jill, would you mind sharing maybe one of your biggest money mistakes that you've made along the way? Well, I wrote about this in the book, and it comes under the category of one of the 13 mistakes people make is they try to time the market. And I think that, look, I was trained as a as a, a derivatives trader. I traded gold, silver, and copper options. It was my first job out of college. And I was a little bit of a math head. And I thought that, you know, with a great formula and my keen ability to see the top and bottom of markets, I could make a lot of money. And I did make a bunch of money, not that much, because I wasn't like dumb money. And I, you know, I wasn't quite good enough to stick around for a long time. But, you know, you, you operate under the illusion that there is some magical way that you can figure out the top and the bottom. And there isn't. And later in my career, when I was managing money, I I made a great call. I did something that was probably seen as a really crazy move, which was at the end of 1999, I was an investment advisor, financial planner. I unloaded all of the technology stock positions that my firm held for everybody. And including myself. And it was a brilliant move, although for the first three months I looked like an idiot. But it was really great. And people were like flocking to me. And I wrote about it in the newspaper where I was, I had the business, and I really thought I was so smart. And you know what happened? I really learned a bitter lesson, and that is it's hard to get back in. It's hard to know when to get back in. And I think that when people believe they're smarter than the market, they fall prey to these emotions. Even if you get one side of the trade right, it's very unlikely you'll get the other side right. You got to make two perfect decisions. And for most investors, including myself, you don't need to time the market. You need to be a long-term investor, get your money to work. The time in the market is really the factor, not timing the market. And so that's a mistake I made. I never made it again. And if you're going to make that mistake, make it with small dollars, make it in your fund money account, make it when there's not a lot of risk. You know, for me, as a money manager at the time, it wasn't so awful that I made that mistake. It was, it would have been awful if I had waited much longer to correct the mistake. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know we're seeing a lot of this today, I would say, with sort of this single stock buying phenomenon with a lot of things that are going on. Are you seeing that this might be an opportunity for people to be making some dumb mistakes when they're jumping on apps like Robinhood or MWine Finance and just buying stocks and calling that investing? I mean, look, if you want to have a fun money account at any firm, you want to buy a little sliver of a stock to learn something, that's fine with me. But I put that in the category of, you know, if you want to buy some Bitcoin, that's fine too. You want to learn about this thing, you want to follow it, you want to stick it in a drawer, fine. But if you think that that's going to be the cornerstone of how you accumulate wealth, I think you're going to be taught a very brutal lesson. So I don't have a problem with people experimenting. I have a problem with them putting all their chips on number eight and letting them, you know, rolling, letting that roulette wheel spin and hoping for the best as opposed to having some control over your financial destiny. 
Yeah. So that's more fun money or, you know, maybe a small portion of your portfolio. Let's talk about retirement. What are some smart moves people can do with their retirement that maybe people are, I guess, avoiding right now or making mistakes on? The mistakes that people are making are mistakes that always occur when markets snap back, when you have a bull market, and that is there's a certain amount of overconfidence and there's a certain amount of optimism that's built into the system. I happen to be optimistic, generally speaking, about the U.S. economy. I do. I think it is going to improve for the vast majority of Americans you know, after the first half of the year. But when it comes to retirement, you don't care what happens this week, this month, even at the end of this year, you care what's happening over the course of decades in the future. So, you know, I think that what's happening now is that people seem to believe in bull markets that they don't have to do the boring old way of accumulating retirement nest eggs. They think they can do it a short, simple, quicker way. And in every every boom cycle has suffers from this. So really, if you tell me that you know, I've done all the things I have to do. I put my money away early. I'm maxing out my retirement account. I'm saving more than I I need. Then, you know, you can go do whatever you want with that other fund money account. But at the end of the day, for retirement, for most people, you start by saying, I've got my emergency reserve fund, six to 12 months of my living expenses, safe account, boring account. I've paid down my debt, including my student loan debt, and I'm maxing out my retirement account. So tell me you're doing all those things and you're putting away $19,500 a year into your retirement account. Tell me you've got that whole, that those big core concepts covered. Then we'll talk about cooler things that you can think about for your retirement. I like that a lot. Well, you mentioned student loans, and obviously that's a big problem in our country with lots of people having ideas on how to solve it. Nevertheless, it it is an issue right now. There's some glimmers of hope right now with the new administration and everything like that, moving things off for payments. What are smart moves that people can make with regard to their student loans after they've already kind of built up maybe a five-figure sum? You know, I always hate getting those questions. Don't you hate those? Because it's sort of, you wanted to catch them at a different point in their decision tree. Yeah, I, I wish the show was for that 18 to 22 year olds. It's, it's for those people who've, who've gotten married and now they're looking at their money being like, oh, I'm not only accepting you as my bride or my, my husband, but I'm also accepting your 30K of student loans as well. <laughs> it is very difficult to say to somebody who already has that debt, that who has accumulated that debt, oh, that was a terrible decision. But if I can just wind the clock back a tiny bit, what would be great is if we could get people to make smarter decisions before they start accumulating debt. And I think, unfortunately, that does start with their parents because very few 18-year-olds have the wherewithal to start making these decisions without somebody in their lives saying, oh, sure, that's fine. So let's say you are starting off. Maybe the first lesson you could have is that accumulating student debt is really pernicious and it's pretty scary. And you are putting yourself in, sometimes a family puts itself in financial peril by doing so. So once you have the debt, it does go back to the sort of boring old financial planning process where you're scouring through your cash flow. You are trying to pay this debt down as quickly as you can. You're very careful before you start any of those options like income-based repayment plans because 
Sometimes they're not great. They can kind of have that loan stick around forever. But at the end of the day, it does start with a conversation that families have to have when their kids are sophomores in high school, which is essentially, this is how much money we can afford. This is the amount of debt that we as a family can take. And this is what that means in terms of the schools you can attend. I hate to say this because just it feels awful, but you know it doesn't really matter where you go to college. It matters that you get a degree, and if you can go to one of these fancy schools, you'll probably get all the money you need if you don't have a, come from a lot of means. And if you're a middle class or upper middle class family, and you can afford to pay for a fifty thousand dollar a year school for your kid, is it really something that you should be doing? Is the state school a better option? What kind of a student is this kid? And if it's your own life, you have to prioritize paying that debt down because now interest rates on student loans are actually pretty hefty. You know, we used to say, oh, five, six percent, no big deal. But when interest rates are at zero percent, you can't really earn a lot of money. And you have a 6% outstanding graduate school loan, that needs to get paid down as quickly as you possibly can. So for the people who are in that tough position, maybe they're in their 30s or 40s and they've got sort of sandwich generation, right? I've I got my aging parents that I'm trying to take care of and then I have my own student debt and then I have kids. Where do people put their priorities if they also need to hit their financial goals, but they're dealing with these issues? How much do we like our parents in this scenario? Set set the stage for me. Are these like, do we like our parents? Or are we? I would say we love our parents. <laughs> okay. If you think about your financial life, like a human body, right? The corpus of your your financial life. You have to make decisions that allow the body to thrive, right? And if you have broken your wrist, it hurts like hell. It really does. But if you're also feeling chest pains, those pains are more important. And we've got to deal with that heart first, right? And so what this really means is you have to prioritize. And yeah, I interviewed, you should interview this woman. Her name is Caitlin Zaloom. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's She's a professor at NYU. She wrote a really good book about student loan and the crisis. She's a, she started writing about this. She's a, I think she's like a sociologist. I think that's her official area or anthropologist. She wanted to understand why are parents putting themselves in so much debt and kids putting themselves in so much debt to get these college educations. A lot of it is really wrapped up around like saying, I want to do better for my kid. I want my kids to do right. I want, I feel guilty because I got a good education. Maybe my parents paid for it, but I can't afford it for my own kids. So there's a lot of emotion wrapped around it. But at the end of the day, these families are stuck with debt. And frankly, if you're in that sandwich generation and you are struggling to pay your own debts down and you're struggling to make ends meet yourself, there's no room for anyone else. If you are now saying to me, I have $1,000 a month left over, I've maxed out my own retirement, I've taken care of myself, my family's okay, now I have to send some money to my parents who maybe spent more than they should have, or have to start putting money away for my own kids, that's a decision a family has to make. I can't make that decision. You're going to do the best you can. But I think that the big problem that I see is that with a lot of families, they don't shortchange their parents' 
instead of their kids and this, that, they really shortchange themselves. So what they'll do is they'll borrow from their retirement, they'll pull back on their retirement contributions while they put their kids through these, you know, fourth tier private universities that it just doesn't matter that they graduate from. And they really find themselves in bad situations when they're in their 50s, 60s, and 70s when they can't really do anything about it. So put our financial oxygen mask on first is is what I'm hearing from you. And even that, like, honestly, I think that like, if you think of it more as like, there are a lot of problems that arise in my life. I've got to take care of not just putting on my own oxygen mask, but really taking a good look at everything else going on in my financial life. And, and am I actually putting my kids at risk because I'm acting imprudent today? So, you know, I have a friend of mine who's father had to sheepishly come to his son. You know, the father's 80 something years old, has to go to the son and basically say, mom and I are about to lose the house. And my friend said, what? And he said, well, we didn't want you and your brother to worry. But guess what? It became a pretty big problem and that the kids had to worry and start shelling out a lot of money to help the parents at a time in their own lives where they It wasn't like cash flow is great when you have four kids or, you know, so parents need to stop trying to, quote unquote, protect to their kids. We have to have open and honest conversations about where we stand in our financial lives. And we have to have a, a conversation that really starts to address what families need financially from one another. These are, you know, it's it's not intragenerational. We do intergenerational financial planning. And I think that that's makes a lot of sense because we are passing problems from one generation to the other when we could be passing assets from one generation to another. How do the sons and daughters have that conversation with their parents before that 82-year-old situation happens? How do we start that conversation? Oh, it's a terrible thing. I mean, it really is. There are some families where money is so taboo, you just can't do it. So I have found that you know when I used to be a financial planner, a way to have the conversation is to invite the parents in with a third party, like a planner, like an estate attorney. But you can only do so much. I mean, it's not as if, you know, at your first Thanksgiving post-pandemic, you're not going to hug your mother and say, great, what if you would be so kind to show me what, you know, where all of your money is, how you're doing, and also, you know, make sure that you've planned for your future. That's not going to happen. So it is bringing up a conversation when it makes sense. I think that sometimes the door is unlocked because of the pandemic to be able to have conversations with your families and say, you know, it's still pretty scary these these days. Have you done a will? Have you updated your will? Have you reviewed this? Have you had a lawyer review it? Do I know where everything is? You know what I just made my mother do? My, my, my poor 81 year old mother who, you know, she's not exactly computer literate. She's not a dope about it, but she doesn't have the facility. So as I was madly trying to book a vaccination appointment for her online, creating an account for her and doing all of this, I all of a sudden said to her, I, I called her up one day and I said, you know what? Do me a favor. Give me your email password. Because everyone's sending her updates via email. She never checks her email. <laughs> And so it can be a small thing like that. It can be, hey, I've just linked all of your medical records in one place. Let me let me show you how to do it. I don't want to do it. Okay, well, I showed my sister how to do it pretty quickly. I was like, by the way, here's mommy's password. Here's all of her test results. Here's her vaccination date. Now we both have it. 
Yeah, well, these are important conversations to have. And, you know, having that open dialogue with your parents, you know, before the latter portion of their lives is a smart move. And it'll also have to save you some heartache as well as some financial trouble in the future. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Let's jump back into the show. I'd like to transition over to home ownership because I know the interest rates are rock bottom right now. So people are feeling this itch that they need to buy or they need to have a home. What are some traps that people get themselves into with regard to home ownership? First, they feel like they should buy, which is insanity. And, you know, it, it may be a great thing for you. It may be a terrible thing for you. I think of like, People who stretch to buy because they just had to buy. I remember I was out in the Bay Area maybe a year or two ago, must have been about a year and a half ago when my book first came out. And I was doing this big speaking engagement and a whole group of like 30-somethings showed up to a book signing and they were all apoplectic about how they couldn't afford houses in the Bay Area. And, you know, prices were crazy. And I said, well, you know what? You're going to have to rent. Well, I can't rent. Well, it doesn't make sense for you to buy. You're buying something that is 
just beyond your ability and will tie you down. It will make it impossible for you to save for college for your kids. It will make it impossible for you to even have flexibility to save more money outside of retirement and do other things. You're you're really putting the pressure, putting like an extra 50-pound weight on your back that doesn't need to be there. But as you say, it's this idea, I have to buy, I have to buy, I have to buy, I have to buy. No one has to buy anything. No one has to do anything. So what I can recommend is that run the numbers. In some places, it makes great sense to buy. In some places, it looks makes much more sense to rent. And for some people, just based on where you are in your career, it makes a lot of sense to have the flexibility to be a renter. By the way, this goes for your older generation as well. There are many times where people say, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to downsize. And yet when they tell me their whole story, it's not that they're downsizing. They're selling a house for a million dollars. They're buying a new house for you know $700,000 and they think they're going to pocket $300,000 and it never works out that way. It's I buy the furniture. I do this. I do that. At the end of the day, you save 50 grand in an account. You haven't downsized, but maybe what you should be doing is thinking like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I'll rent for a while. Let me see how things go. Let me see really where I want to be. Let me see how it feels to have that million bucks working for me liquid while I rent and have no responsibilities. That can be a really wonderful feeling for someone in their 70s or 80s. Yeah, I think having those options is beautiful. I remember I bought my first home right when I was 22, right when I graduated from college, because I thought that was the the smart thing to do with money. And I quickly found out that I was trapped. I got a house for more than I could afford. The housing expenses themselves, the mortgage, everything that went into it, even fixing the roof, all these things quickly took up about 50% of my income. I couldn't go out with my buddies anymore. You know, all the things that I like to do. And then the housing market fell out in Detroit and my home that was once valued at $200,000 was now valued at $100,000, but I still owed $180,000 on it. So when I got job opportunities to move to Chicago or different places, I'm like, I can't go anywhere. So I mean, I really felt that trap because that was one of my major money mistakes. And I think it comes from these ideals of what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to be homeowners. We're supposed to send our kids to college no matter what. And those things need to be challenged. And I'm glad you are challenging them today. One thing that I want to talk about is life insurance. This is one of those boring, roll your eyes, you know, glaze over conversations, but it's super important. Why do people avoid this so much? Is it because it's so boring? (laughs) No, it's not because it's so boring. It's because they can't bear to talk about death and I'm happy to. So, let's go. (laughs) You know, there's two aspects of this. There's like one end of it where people just don't like the idea of death and they don't want to contemplate their own demise. And so they don't want to, they just don't do anything about it. Or they say, I don't have any money or assets to protect or anything. And they just push it aside. And then the other part is that insurance is an industry that is really fraught with a ton of aggressive salespeople and not all of them. So insurance guys don't come after me. You know, I, I, I know, I mean, I really do love insurance because it's a beautiful, pure product when it's done right. And it's very rare in the world of finances that you can transfer the risk so efficiently from you, the person 
to a company for very, very short dollars. So I love that idea. But what I don't like is when, for example, someone called me today on my podcast and said, I am paying $87 a month for term life insurance. I'm 59 years old. My insurance salesperson told me that I should convert it to permanent life insurance or whole life insurance. And wouldn't that make more sense? And they basically parrot back what the insurance person told them. At which point I said, let me ask you something. Why do you need life insurance? You're 59 years old. You've got two kids. They're in their 20s. You've saved a million bucks. You have a $300,000 house. So what happens if you die? Like, What happens financially that's so bad that you need to buy more protection? And she just paused. She goes, well, I never really thought about that. So the first part of insurance, whatever it is, is to understand what is the risk that you're under right now. Hey, Andy might be a self-employed guy who really should buy disability insurance, which is terribly, terribly expensive. But it may be that given your age and life and what's ahead of you, the risk of you becoming disabled before the age of 65 is far greater than you dying before you're 65. And maybe you're going to have to actually transfer that risk to some company and say, if I can't work for some reason in the next you know, 40, 30 years, then I need some stream of income to help my family. But The problem with insurance is it forces you to contemplate bad things and bad outcomes. And on top of that, you layer on top of that the problem that there can be an aggressive salesmanship to the process and it makes people freak out. The good news is, look, there's tons of really good opportunities to buy insurance online. The vast majority of people listening to this show know that they probably, maybe they need a little insurance. Well, should you be buying more insurance through your employer? Can you bring it with you if you leave that employer? Should you just buy 20-year term life insurance and hop onto Policy Genius and go get your term life insurance or go to any major insurance company's website and just buy a half a million dollar policy? There's a zillion calculators that will tell you how much insurance you need. But 95% of the time, people just use insurance to cover a temporary need, a specific term. I need insurance so that in case I die within the next 20 years before my kids are grown, I've taken care of my family, my spouse, retirement, kids, everything. And I can do that with this amount of life insurance. So it's not hard. It's not even so boring. It's just that it is so, it can just be A, emotional and B, oversold. It can be one of those checkbox items. Once it's done, it's done. You get the term, you, you let it ride, and you're protected during that period of time when you need to be covered if you were to pass away and you know you need to have coverage for your family. So I love this, Jill. We've talked about a lot of things today. So somebody's listening and they've got some ideas of what mistakes to avoid. If they had to choose just one thing to make this their best year yet, what would be one action they could take following this interview? Create a plan. It's really easy to do, and if you can't do it yourself, there's a lot of low-cost and fee-based options now, but create some sort of game plan for you, for your family, and figure out a way that you can stick to it. Don't make it pie in the sky. The game plan may be, this year I need to fund my emergency reserve fund and pay down my student loan debt. 
comb through the money you're, that's coming in and you're spending, allocate the amount of money that you can put towards that goal and put your plan on autopilot. And, you know, it will happen. Some of the greatest success stories that I saw when I was a CFP, a practicing CFP, since I'm still a CFP, they'd kill me if I heard that they said was, <laughs> I mean, I am a proud certified financial planner, that some of the big mistakes were able to be corrected because a lot of people who could just take bites of the bites of their plan, like this year I'm doing this, this year I'm doing this, this year I'm doing this, and not try to kill themselves to do everything at once, but slowly but surely got there. They turned into really success stories of for themselves. You don't need to compare yourself to anyone else. I'm a Peloton person, right? So one of the things that I love is there's this one part of Peloton where you compare yourself to other people who are riding the bike at the same time, right? You look at the leaderboard. I hate that. I think that's so dumb because I was a varsity athlete in college and I just think, you know, how am I going to compare? Who knows what who I'm comparing myself to? There's another part of the whole Peloton world, which is called power zone training. You take a test, right? You see what your fitness level is and you have these zones and you just basically are working towards your own goals. What anyone else does has nothing to do with what you're doing. That's how I think about financial planning. It should have nothing to do with what anyone else is doing. Even your parents, if your parents say, oh, well, I was your age, I was doing this. Who cares? It's a different world. You know, I, great mom, maybe you didn't do the right thing or maybe you did do the right thing. Maybe that's not the right thing for me. So develop a game plan that you and your family can really get on board with and stick to it and know that you don't have to knock it out of the park. You, you can just be consistent in hitting the, the goals that you establish and you'll be happier for it. I love it. Yes. Personal finance is definitely personal and take it one step at a time. I love it, Jill. Thank you so much. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and check out this awesome book of yours? You can go to my website, jillonmoney.com, jillonmoney.com. And you can always send questions to me because I do love to answer questions. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. Excellent. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's a great place to go too, is Jill on Money. Just type that into your favorite podcast player and check out her show. Jill, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. mistakes. God knows I have made plenty. Jill is giving us a path to correct some of those mistakes and help our families get to the next level. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Jill Schlesinger. Number one, focus on retirement first over investing for fun. Man, there is a lot of buzz going on lately around investing. Apps like Robinhood have made it so simple, so cheap, and so easy to trade that it's become the sexy way to invest. Now, that's all well and good if you're set in other areas of your life. As Jill said, maybe you've got three to six months of expenses saved for an emergency fund, or you are taking advantage of your office place 401k and investing in an IRA or an HSA, taking advantage of these areas before you're doing the individual stock picking and day trading, because that's going to be a difficult way to retirement for the majority of folks out there. So check yourself and make sure you are taking care of the important things before investing for fun. Number two, take this pandemic window to talk to your parents about money. In the past couple of years, 
our family has had a couple close family members pass away. It got me thinking about my parents during that time period and wanting to make sure that I knew what was going on with their affairs as they grew older. That time, although extremely difficult, became a window of opportunity for me to engage with my parents in conversations about their finances. We discussed their estate plan, their retirement plans, you know, if they have enough to retire, are they going to be set, and their final wishes. It was a good chat, and it had helped me to prepare for, yes, the inevitable, right? I can't think about my parents going anytime soon, because that makes me sad, but it's important to prepare So my point in sharing this is that the pandemic, although pretty horrible with all the lives that have been lost, this could be your window to open up conversations with your parents as well. What are their final wishes? What are their plans? Are they set for retirement? Are they going to be ended up living in your place because they don't have enough for retirement? These are important things to talk about before that moment gets there. Number three, term life insurance keeps you covered. If you've been waiting to get your life insurance taken care of because it's a unfun topic to think about your own mortality, I totally get it. Nobody wants to think about that constantly. It's very unfun. But try thinking about it for your kids or your spouse, because if you weren't around anymore, how would they get on without you or your income? That's important to think about. So if you're ready to get a policy, check out a term life insurance policy provider today. And I've recommended Quotacy for a while, but as Jill said, there are dozens and dozens of online term life insurance partners. That's the whole point, term life. So you get the life insurance for a term, not for your whole life. Whole life isn't horrible, but it doesn't work for the majority of people out there, and it works really well for the people who are selling it. So, for the majority of folks out there, term life insurance policy is a great way to go. And you can get the process done in less than 30 minutes. Check it off your list, do it, get it done, and protect your family from the unexpected. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for putting together today's show and for Alec Collins and Dan Hines for editing our YouTube videos. You can check those out at youtube.com slash marriagekidsandmoney. And yeah, we got like 1,300 subscribers there. That's growing. So if you like video stuff, you know, you like the podcast, that's cool. You can also check out the videos there. So youtube.com slash marriagekidsmoney. Hit subscribe. Make Andy smile. (laughs) Before we go for the day, I want to encourage you to join our free Thriving Families Facebook community. We are now over 1,000 families strong, and we're helping each other thrive in 2021. One thing we like to do in this group is share our family wins. So Nicholas shared this big win recently, and I thought I'd share it with you guys. He goes like this. In 2020, we paid off both our cars, and we just refinanced our mortgage to a 15-year at 2%. (laughs) Those are two rock star moves there, Nicholas. Way to go. Paid four cars and a 2% mortgage, man. I don't know if I would have paid up my mortgage if it was 2%. (laughs) I probably would have. I didn't really like my mortgage. (laughs) 
Anyway, Nicholas, congratulations. I'm sure those cars are driving even better now that they're paid off. Let's give Nicholas a round of applause, please. All right. Way to go, Nicholas. Very cool. Very cool. If you want to get inspired by others in our group and be held accountable for your big goals, please join us at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. Again, that's free, everybody. We're helping each other thrive. So we'd love to see you there. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Anonymous. Remember that life's greatest lessons are usually learned at the worst times and from the worst mistakes. Let's learn from our mistakes and become better because of them. Carpe diem. 